Welcome back to Speaking of Startups, previously known as the Charlotte Angel Connection. Today, we release a podcast with Michael and Leanne Burnett. They are the founders of Burnett Index, which is an entity that has been spun out of Burnett Risk Control International. So our podcast today will explore what Burnett Risk Control International was, how it developed its expertise, what's its expertise in, and how that ultimately led to the database that forms Burnett Index. So super exciting conversation, really solid husband and wife team, as you'll pick up on in the interaction between the two of them, and something that I think you'll enjoy as another edition of Speaking of Startups podcast. Michael Leanne, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you here today. Thank you, William. We're happy to be here. It's good to be here. So we've got ourselves a, uh, a good little time of 30 or 45 minutes ahead of us, or no, sorry, 45 or 50 minutes ahead of us um, to talk a little bit about y'all's background and startup and everything. So it's going to be a fun conversation. Michael, as we talked about a little bit, if you can give us maybe your elevator pitch, so you're stuck with me going, we'll call it the bank of the old school Bank of America Tower from floor zero to floor 100. You've got my captivated ear for that time period. What are you doing? Uh, well, good morning. I have created a, a new startup business called Burnett Index, which is a it's a compilation of data, uh, a significant amount of data about the valuations of sexual misconduct, sexual abuse claims. And the data comes from all over the world. And I'm constantly adding new data to the database. And the purpose of that is to help various stakeholders in the arena of sexual misconduct and the ensuring of sexual misconduct, the resolution of sexual misconduct claims, to give all of those stakeholders a perspective, a data-driven understanding of what the value of those claims are. And so those I have found over the course of many years that that information is critically important to creating a a groundwork for a compassionate and cost-effective and expedited resolution of sexual misconduct claims. And so that is something that sometimes they don't even know it, but uh, the various stakeholders involved in that enterprise all generally have the same, at least philosophical uh, approach that they bring to the endeavor. And, And that is people are understandably very upset when they hear about the kinds of really horrific sexual misconduct that has taken place, especially when it involves minors. And so generally, people, when they hear about these these claims and they come together, they have a desire to resolve those in a way that will be preventative and that will be data-driven so that they feel that they're part of something that is really a, a, a beneficial response to those kinds of claims. They may not always understand that in terms of their role, but over time they come to that realization. And so I find that data really helps that process. So um, great background, obviously a um, a tough subject, right? It's not a subject that any of us wish that we had to be aware of and deal with on a daily basis. But unfortunately, over the course of probably millennium, right? I guess probably since the beginning of time, it's, it's something that has been out there in the world. That's correct. So with that, um, 
you didn't just wake up one morning and decide that you wanted to create this data, right? So if you can walk us through a little bit of the historical basis that got you to be what we'll call an expert in this space, right? Um, I mean, you're an expert witness in in various cases, so you are an expert. So how did you, how did you land here? It's a good question. Um, I've been a lawyer for 34 years. And- That's okay. It's, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, don't use that against me. <laughs> but uh, during the course of working at large law firms in Chicago, I became an insurance coverage attorney. And so my my role was to represent insurance companies, domestic and international co- uh, companies who insured a variety of risks all over the world. And so I, I became pretty knowledgeable about that. And then one of the law firms I worked at involved a lot of coverage of various religious and nonprofit institutions over many decades. And in beginning in the 1980s, but really picking up in the early 2000s, those insurers were confronted with many, many sexual abuse claims that happened on the watch of their insureds, whether that was a religious entity or a a charitable organization or something like that. And increasingly that also involves commercial enterprises companies. And so when I was working in a law firm representing these primarily international insurers, I would be requested oftentimes by a judge or by an arbitrator or mediator to attend mediations. And that's not uncommon because I'm the person with the purse strings, so to speak, representing the insurer. I would be the one that would say, well, the insurance carrier believes that this claim is worth X and therefore we're willing to negotiate to that point. When I worked on sexual abuse claims, what I found was that I interacted very well with sexual abuse victims. And a lot of times the insurance person is kind of in the shadows or in the next room. And they're the ones that are deciding whether or not a negotiated settlement is appropriate. But instead I always sat at the table. I wanted to be across the table from victims and their attorneys. Uh, because I felt like that was really important given the nature of the the damage that had been done. And so I just found that I interacted very well with, with victims and that my hope was, and I, I found through what they said that they that victims realized this, that I I heard them and they knew that I heard them. I had a woman once tell me in a multi-million dollar resolution, she came up to me and said that I was the first person that had ho- heard her. Her husband didn't understand. Her attorney didn't really understand. But for whatever reason, I was able to understand that and I was able to really be a part of that resolution in a way that was very meaningful for me and my clients because they felt that they were part of something important, that they understood that they owed coverage for a risk and that that particular risk was horrific and they felt good about the fact that they could be a part of that resolution. And so I went off on my own eventually because I really found that I was, you know, it was very gratifying to work in that space. And so for the last 21 years or so, I've compiled data that has helped me and helped others understand what the value of a claim is, hopefully, if everything is done correctly, so that there's not drawn out litigation, which can be very damaging to someone who's already been sexually abused, excuse me, and damaged in a number of ways. Excuse me. So, So, Michael, let me jump in real quick. Um, on that note, I mean, you brought up something that is is an interesting concept, right? That sitting in those rooms 
you'll hear from multiple people along the way that you're one of the first people that truly kind of sits back and understands where the victim's coming from. So I'm going to let you take a break real quick and I'm going to pull Leanne in. Leanne, what is it about Michael that gives him that ability to have that presence in the room that other loved ones of the victims might not even have? Um, well, M- Michael has a tendency uh, to be very empathetic. And um, and I think that it just is very genuine in him that he, um, um, you know, a, a lot of this came out of the Catholic Church. Um, we have been Catholics. We, you know, Michael and I met at Notre Dame. We were both lifelong Catholics. And it is very troubling to us that um, a lot of this came out of the Catholic Church. And and we continue to be devout Catholics, but um, recognizing that, um, like all things, the institution can be imperfect. And I think that Michael took it um, personally to try to want to heal what he could about that. And I think that because he has been, um, he's he's been so connected to so many of these claims, and and so many of them have really egregious facts that, you know, it, um, you know, it's interesting because in one way he's very affected by it, um, that he, that he feels deeply for these people and wants to help them. But in another sense, he has um, been able to compartmentalize what he sees. And again, it's, it's a very disturbing topic and, and an unpleasant topic, but he can kind of put that in a box and still, um, still be a faithful, uh, Catholic, but um, but also recognizing the imperfections that are around him. And I think it's just comes out of just a general empathetic nature and also just wanting to be a part of righting some of the wrongs that have happened. Yeah. And so that's what I see in him. It seems um, like the, like it almost is like there are competing concepts going on, right? Because, Michael, you take it from a very data-centric perspective. Um, cause you've been accumulating this data, I think you said for the last 21 ish years. Um, and so on the one hand, like when I think of data, I think of numbers and when I think of numbers, I think black and white. And so to, to hear that concept is you clearly have a unique talent of if you're presenting a black and white, but doing it in a way that people can gravitate towards from a em- empathy standpoint, it, the delivery obviously is is a unique skill set. I think that's true. And I think that that can sometimes be a real challenge. So for example, right now, I'm the administrator of a compensation fund in it with for a Catholic entity. And what's interesting is, you know, I, I work with people who've been deeply harmed. And when it's, when it's in a religious entity, whether it's Catholic or otherwise, they are deeply affected because this thing that was so important in their lives and that in many respects I you know created part of their identity uh, became the source of great harm. And so when I'm trying to help people receive some form of compensation, generally as a concept of atonement by an institution, it's difficult because there's nothing fair about the process in the sense that it wasn't fair that someone was abused and it's not fair, given the fact that they were, that they we can't give them unlimited resources because there are finite resources available. And so my task is to be able to say to people with complete credibility, because it's the truth, and that is, in your area, given the type of abuse that you suffered, 
and who perpetrated that abuse, to be equitable, to make sure that you're treated equitably with other people in your area. This is the amount that this type of claim is typically resolved for, and that that is based on data. And, that, and so that we have an, a much greater assurance that you'll be treated equitably. Like I said, I try to avoid the word fair because there's nothing fair about what happened to these people. And so that's what I try to achieve. And like I said earlier, I think that in a kind of in an abstract philosophical way, most people want to be part of that resolution process. But especially when you're dealing with institutions that have a difficulty even accepting or acknowledging the fact that that institution caused great harm, then part of that is to be, I sometimes feel like I'm giving a tutorial with the people who are the the office holders of institutions to help them understand more fully what happened on their watch, but to basically say there's a way to try to right that wrong, or at least as much as we can. And one way that we can do that is through making sure that we're part of an equitable process. So you mentioned, um, and we've talked about it, right, that going back to 2003, you've been creating or been maintaining data that you've gone through on these claims and whatnot. So when I think about that in the world that we live in, it's hard for me to wrap my head around how many maybe cases or claims like that, that you might have in your database that would validate it about how much data or claims do you have? There are, I have entries in my database that represent over 88,000 values of claims throughout the world. And in the United States, there are about 66,000 of those, but there are many, many more that I'm constantly putting in. And so that number is always growing. So then you've got, a, unfortunately, a very robust database that helps quantify the numbers that you're talking about. That's correct. And it, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of conclusions that we can, can be drawn from that. And one of them is that in the United States and Canada, that we have a much longer history of approaching these claims and trying to resolve them. And the rest of the world is in many respects, except, you know, there are some exceptions that the rest of the world is kind of playing catch up and trying to understand that this happens in their countries as well, or in their institutions. And so the data that's drawn from those countries is helpful to those people to say, well, okay, how do we how do we approach this in terms of the magnitude of the problem and what it's going to take to resolve those claims? Yeah. How do insurance companies view and approach this space these days, right? I mean, back in the 80s, I mean, it's, it's had to have, back in the 80s, none of this was as out in the open as it is nowadays, right? So that's, how is the- correct. And I hate to say it this way, but how has the industry had to change as a result? It's a really good question because without getting into details of coverage, for most of the history of insurance, and insurance basically was created by the Lloyds of London and the London Market of Insurers back in the 17th century. And so all through that time, it was based on an occurrence. And essentially, the idea was when there's an occurrence that when you're talking about third-party coverage that harms someone on your premises or through your activities, that if that person has been harmed, that insurance is there to help the institution respond to that person and make them whole. And so really until probably the 1980s, there was sexual misconduct, but really wasn't on people's radar screens. People had a general notion that it happened, uh, but I think the idea was that it was much more rare than it really is. 
And insurance policies didn't even address that because it wasn't something that they even thought about. Well, then fast forward many decades where these claims started coming forward and they're called long tail claims, meaning they're historical claims that, you know, you may be bringing a claim in 2023 involving something that happened to the victim back in 1985, for example. And so once these claims started to emerge more and insurance companies really started to lose a lot of money um, involving that kind of coverage, they realized that they had to change their coverages. So some insurers started applying absolute exclusions against sexual misconduct, basically saying, we'll cover if someone is harmed on your premises, but if it involves sexual misconduct, we will not provide any coverage for that. And so that created a real problem in a number of institutions. And so there, that gave an opportunity for some other insurers who became more dedicated to that type of coverage and more knowledgeable about the kinds of harm that can, that can occur and the, the value of those kinds of harms. But a lot of times I found that those values were kind of abstract. They weren't rooted in anything. So I think now a lot of insurance companies are saying, well, okay, you're a valued insured of ours. We recognize that this is a harm that happens on your watch or happened on your watch. We're will, we are willing to provide coverage to you, usually in a somewhat limited way to assist you to, so that you can go on and do what it is you do. Unfortunately, the insurance industry first shut it down and now has had to shift to a recognition that it's a world that we have to figure out. That's correct. And, you know, it really put in very simple terms, the way insurance companies make profits is they take in premiums and the hope is that they don't have to pay any of that out in a claim. And so that's one reason why insurance companies got out of the market, because the insurance, the premiums that they had charged were not nearly sufficient to pay out the kinds of claims that, that people were experiencing. And so one of the interesting things that I think is really important about the insurance industry that people don't always appreciate is that the insurance industry all, oftentimes drives really positive change in the world. So there are, if you look at the auto industry, for example, it was the insurance industry that really started to drive the use of seatbelts and airbags in automobiles and had the intended effect, which was to really reduce the number of injuries and deaths on the road. And that is something that was driven by those insurance companies who understood from their experience that they were taking huge losses. And in a similar way, in the sexual misconduct arena, a lot of those insurance companies who have, this sounds kind of crass, but who've gotten back into that market have an opportunity to drive positive change. We'll provide coverage for you when God forbid something awful happens, but here are the kinds of things we expect out of you, which is risk management policies and, and policies and procedures to prevent abuse, to properly handle abuse claims, that kind of thing. And so it's a there's an opportunity for insurance companies, if they can kind of quantify the risk, there's an opportunity for them to be part of this whole enterprise of trying to prevent abuse and trying to properly handle abuse claims when it does happen. Okay. I'm accustomed to kind of the insurance world in the more classic sense, right? Life insurance, disability insurance, and things like that. And I'm thinking of the, the old person, um, chain smoking cigarettes in a closet, um, referred to as an actuary, right? Trying to figure out how long somebody's going to live this out or the other thing. 
Um, and sorry, no knock on old people smoking cigarettes in a closet. That's what it is, right? No um, offense taken here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the like, there's no like how as we think about your company, Burnett Index, going forward. Like you have the opportunity to provide that data to the what is I guess I'm going to think of as the actuary on you know how what's the cost of insurance to set this marketplace is that um i guess uh so that's a precede how did the idea when did the idea come about hey i've got 88,000 claims and growing um in a database we have the potential to do something to help the industry right like how did that idea come out I'm well, imagining I, a glass of wine on a back deck between you and Leanne. I don't know. <laughs> no, actually, it's it's a good question. What happened was when I was representing uh, international insurers and primarily the London Lloyd's of London, the London market of insurers, and trying to assist them in in resolving these claims, there were you know there were a number of the, the market is not the market, but it was there was an exploding problem. And especially after the, after the Archdiocese of Boston scandal hit in 2002, there was this need to find out how do we resolve these claims in a way that's, that's effective and cost effective. And so when I would go to mediations or arbitrations or informal settlement negotiations, I was able to help as the person who represented the insurers who worked on these claims across the country to say, okay, well, based on my experience, based on my knowledge, because I've already resolved many of these, and so have my colleagues, I can say that in this area, this type of a claim generally settles for this amount. And that's based on what defenses are available, the nature of the abuse, the age of the child, that kind of thing. And that became really helpful. And I, I found that I was able to develop relationships with plaintiff's attorneys, defense attorneys, risk managers, and there was a trust there that what I was bringing to the table was a national knowledge. And so I realized that this is something that needs to be done more often. And so that was, and I was very energized by that process and being able to help prepare and help contribute to a compassionate resolution. And so that's when I went off on my own and decided, hey, I've got something going here. I know that I need to, to accumulate data so that I can do this on a on a bigger scale across the country. So um, I, that... I'll jump in here a little bit for the history. Um, um, we when Michael was uh, breaking out of the law firm, um, I had recently been in a litigation support consulting firm, and I worked on a an area in that company called the Asbestos Claims Facility, and and that was a mass tort. And that was we uh, our company was a valuation company that I worked for, and they provided valuations so that people could circumvent the court systems and really efficiently get through before they would die of this terrible disease that they had. And so that was sort of a blend of that background with what Michael was coming off of um, from the law firm. And we had a glass of wine, probably not in the back porch because we lived in Chicago, didn't have a back porch, but I think it was in our <laughs> living room. And we talked about him developing this database because he had been involved in the resolution of so many claims already. And we talked about him developing a database that would be uh, that would inform what he would do, because that's really we we used a lot of numbers for the asbestos work. 
um, of things that had settled. It was it was the same concept. It was just uh, replacing the sexual misconduct with uh, or replacing asbestos with the sexual misconduct. And then Michael built the database. He just used it for his own purposes over the last 20 some odd years. And many times um, as we raised our four daughters um, in busy lives and busy households, we're like, we have to um, we have to sell access to this at some point because this would be good for more people to have their hands on so that they can efficiently get through this. So just in uh, response to your question, in terms of the glass of wine conversation, mm -hmm. that's kind of how the um, how the evolution of this came from Michael leaving the law firm to um, developing this product for for um, subscription based um, you know, users. Yeah, and it makes complete sense, right? I mean, that's the classic professional decision. I have a talent that I can monetize um, or I have knowledge that I can monetize or whatever. And so I'm going to go start my own company to monetize that data. And then I'm going to you know, have the ability over time to increase my rate or retainer or whatever it is because... Um, I am a skilled person and I've built up this knowledge and therefore, so the, like the classic path that you took, it makes a ton of sense because you're, um, but then not many professionals make that next leap, which is, Hey, wait a second. I can build this beyond my own retainer, right? I can't work 24 hours a day or 200 hours a day. Although lawyers used to be able to do that in the nineties, right? They can't do that as well anymore. Um, <laughs> But anyways, so you again, make that next... was insurance companies that put a stop to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, but um, so like the the concept the the concept of the software is brilliant, right? Because it's not something that most professionals, and I'll stop picking on attorneys, most professionals don't <laughs> take that next leap, which is I've got something is usable, it's in a database, and now all of a sudden. I can multiply myself a thousand times over, right? I mean, that's a really unique concept. Yeah, and, and there's something else that informs, I mean, it's a really good point, but part of what informed that was a frustration that I often had as, as coverage counsel, where I give this example a lot. I would get a, a file on my desk on a claim that was maybe two years old. So that was a problem right off the bat. They should have put the insurance carrier on notice right away. But when I would look at that, there would be oftentimes a substantial amount of attorney's fees and costs, sometimes in the six figures. And there was very little work really that had been done in terms of the path of resolution. And I would ask the question of defense counsel, do we have a pretty high confidence level that this actually happened? And oftentimes, almost always, the answer was, oh, absolutely, this person was abused. And so my question would be, well, why are we two years into it and over $100,000 in defense costs? There have been no depositions taken. There's been no written discovery. There's been no mediation. And here's a person who could have been on day one, could have been compensated for the harm that was done to them. And it would have saved you know, my client a substantial amount of money and given an opportunity. It would have given an opportunity for healing which can affect other claims that come forward. And so that was a, a frustration that I wanted to try to, you know, to, to heal in a sense and be able to be part of the process early on so that it's not just me evaluating claims, but let's say an insurance uh, broker or a claims adjuster who gets a file, a claim and can say, well, using my data and can say, oh, okay, 
These are the parameters of this claim. This is how much this claim should be settled for. Why not do that today rather than two, three, four years down the road? And I think, you know, people give attorneys a hard time, but, you know, sometimes well-deserved. But one of the things that I think is really true, and I found this with my colleagues in law firms, is you want to be part of something that is beneficial to the community uh, without doing harm and in a way that will still very robustly uh, advance the interests of your client. Okay. So you've got a database of um, of claims. It's a growing database of claims. You have a concept. You've um, Your core business, your legacy business is, what's the name of it? Uh, Burnett Risk Control International. Okay. And then, so the new one is Burnett Index. Obviously, Index being a playoff of the data, right? That's correct. Um, so, and Burnett Risk Control is still a company. This is just a new a new entity that that uh, I've created. So you take your spreadsheet of eighty eight thousand claims and you put it behind a, um, a um, like a login or and I know I'm just kidding. Like how so we're we now have this data. How do we move it into a usable format? Right? Like how do y'all start to process? Hey, wait a second. We've got this this concept. We're going to spin out a new company. We're going to, um, and we're going to make it a usable database for people to hire or to use, consult off of, et cetera, et cetera. Like walk us through the 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 first couple weeks, days, months, quarters of getting the startup off the ground. So what we what we want to do is to sell subscriptions to the database yep. so that people can have access to it. And to your point, you know they they would. Basically, the way it would work would be people would be able to log in and run searches. So they would they would be they'd be able to pull up a form which they could put as much information as they have about a sexual abuse claim, and whether that person is an insurance carrier or an, or a claims adjuster or an attorney or even the institution itself. And they can say, well, here we have this thing that we've been confronted with. What is this claim worth? And so if they put all the information in this. Then, based on the data that's in that's in the database, what would pull up would be a number of different metrics in terms of what the valuation could be, and those are different ways of averaging. Whether that's an average, a mean, a mode, uh, it could be a middle half mean. When all that information is provided to the person, so that they're not seeing individual claims, but what they're seeing is the use of those claims so that they can get an, a, a kind of their, their arms around what they're looking at in terms of the value of the claim. And so that's really helpful to a lot of institutions and insurers who are trying to figure out what to do with the situation. Oftentimes they've never experienced it before. So this is a shocking situation for them. And if they can go in and they can find a way to figure out on day one and then along the evolution of the claim, what it's worth. And so oftentimes, when a claim is first, uh, when a company or an insurance carrier first has access to a claim, it's because a lawsuit has been filed. Well, in the early days of a lawsuit, oftentimes you don't know a lot, but then the claim evolves when there's discovery and people start to learn through depositions and production requests and things like that. They start to get more detail. And so those people can then go back into the database and they can run an additional search with that additional information. And that will affect what the value of the claim is as of that day. And so one of the things that we're offering is that people who have access to this database 
also have a place, kind of a repository, personal repository, for them to keep track of their sexual abuse claims. So they could then pull that up at any time they wanted to and say, well, you know, that was six months ago. Let's see, based on the new information we have, what that claim is worth. And based on the last six months, we don't know how much additional data has come in. We might have so much more data that will help us get an even more nuanced valuation of the claim. Yeah. Which one of y'all built the database? Well, I've been the one building it, but uh, we're now working with a company that has helped us put it together and make it accessible to people who need access to that kind of information. Yeah, and how how it all started, actually, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about um, the evolution of all this is uh, people sort of dropped into our lives at really critical moments. So when we uh, just had the concept of building a database, um, I went downtown Chicago and started to a Barnes and Nobles on Michigan Avenue and started pulling books off the shelf because I'm like, I, I got to figure out how to do a database. Up the escalator comes the nephew of one of my best friends from Notre Dame who had just graduated from Notre Dame with a degree in computer science. And he asked me, what are you doing? And I told him what I was doing. And he said, I can build that for you. And so he was the one actually who built the database. Um, Michael and I uh, collaborated on the um, what the fields would be. Um, with Michael, of course, having the, you know, all the real legal knowledge of it all, but we collaborated on what the fields would be. And then um, that database existed in that original form for probably over a decade. And we've uh, we've moved it um, here and there. And just more recently, we moved it to an access database. And we have um, my sister's best friend's husband, who lives <laughs> down the road from us, just so happens, helped us really improve it a lot by putting it onto access. And then the last little coincidence, happy coincidence we had was Michael was um, taking one of our daughters to a tennis match and a parent of a, her, one of her friends just got to talking and said, you know, what do you do? And Michael mentioned it and somehow the database came up and he said, and Michael said, like we always say, and like we'd said for so many years, we got to sell access to it someday. And he said, I know a company that can do that. And that company is Dual Boot Partners. And so we've been working with them since January and they have a team that's a global team. And we meet weekly and they they have been um, taking this concept, designing what it will look like. And then um, we're just, um, we, we've, we've transferred some data. Now we're in the testing process and the QA process to make sure uh, the response you know, what we're getting for results are the same as the ones of access, but um, but it'll be ready to go pretty soon. And just like Michael was telling you about how the users will interface with it, um, that's what we're working toward making it a great interface. But um, I'm always struck by just uh, the happy coincidences that have happened along the way that these people have just dropped into our lives mm. at critical moments. You know, the, the one that blows me away is the Chicago one, a city of five million people. Like <laughs> when I'm sitting there, like, I don't know how to do a database. And up the, up the thing comes a guy that says, I'll do it for 35 bucks an hour. I'm like, sold. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, there's that serendipity. But what's really What's really interesting about that is that at each iteration of this process, when we've realized, well, we need a new way of doing it, we need a more, uh, you know, a, a greater way of doing it. What that's done for me is to kind of really understand and, and think about, well, what additional fields would I like? What do I do when I'm when I'm retained by an insurance company or an institution or attorneys? when they ask me to evaluate a claim, what's the whole process that I go through? And it's a, it's a very expansive process. And so that has forced me, okay, 
now I need to figure out what, what can I, how can I replicate my knowledge through a database? And so that's caused me to really rethink along the way, adding fields and being able to show in a database and data form what I do personally with my knowledge and expertise and experience. How's the, so building the database back in, we'll call it the 2000s, um, you know, is, was helpful as you, as you kind of took it out, but Michael, you were always able to massage the data and present it, right? You could pull it out and present it in any way you wanted to, to the insurance company or whoever it needed to go to at that point in time. But now all of a sudden we've got a database and access that we're going to try to sell subscription to. How's that process been over the course of the last 10 months to kind of let go of it, right? Like it can't always be exactly perfect, but how, how fun and frustrating has it been to try to create those visualizations that you're going to need or that you want people to have access to. So it's a clean user-friendly quick way for people to access the data. It's, it's been an interesting process and it's forced me to really think about what I do because I do it so much that I don't think about what I'm doing. I, when I'm hired to evaluate a claim or a series of claims, I'm looking at not just the averages and the middle half means and things like that. I'm looking way beyond that. I'm looking for individual claims that are that are particularly relevant to that claim that may be very similar. I'm looking at a number of different data points that go way beyond what's available. And so part of the process has been to think, well, how can we put that into the, you know, it'll be beyond access to the new database. How can we represent what I do and my expertise in metrics? And so it's been really helpful to work with people who work on databases all the time and to hear from them, well, what we need to, what we need you to do is to consider what you do and to break it down. And so that's been an interesting process because we tend to do what we do. And then if you step back and say, well, gosh, if I break this down, what am I constantly looking at? And how do I take those metrics? And, you know, and as you say, massage them because, well, gosh, here's a metric. But in this particular case, there are a series of claims that I would give greater weight to and for different reasons. And so that's been a really important process, uh, sometimes confounding because I really have to sit back and think, well, is that something that would be valuable to people on a regular basis or is it just valuable to me? And what I'm finding is that what my expertise is, is something that people that will be very valuable to people. And then if, if people want to go beyond what they can find in the database, they can always retain me as an expert to give a much more comprehensive and nuanced valuation. But the, the process of saying, well, okay, we're no longer creating as many fields as we can to make something as accurate as we can. We want to provide meat on the bones, so to speak, so that when people get, get into the database and run their searches and get, and get information back, that they have a real confidence that this is information that goes beyond just, you know, just raw numbers. Yeah. How, um, I mean, you can tell in our conversation today, we were, I was able to kind of pick up on it really quickly in our, our pre-call as well, that as a team, y'all work really well together, despite that your husband and wife, and I say, despite <laughs> Um, half jokingly, right? Um, so many, so many people say that there's no way that they could 
you know, work husband and wife. And they say it in, in the most caring way you can possibly make that statement, but y'all play off each other really well. Um, how do y'all, um, how do y'all separate when you need to from a, like a business slash personal perspective, or is it a constant free flow where they're, um, you know, business and personal just work so smoothly together that you don't really have to create that separation. Well, well I, I'll, I can give I'll some start. Con- let me, Wait, I can start. Okay, here we go. <laughs> that, you've got the conflict here. Um, yeah. I, I think it really helps that Michael and I, we met at college and we were best friends for 10 years before we got married. And so um, that we've known each other since we were 18. So, okay. Yeah. The the friendship is really at the basis of everything for us. And so that doesn't mean that we don't get completely annoyed with each other because that happens (laughs) on the daily, probably. (laughs) But, um, and so, you know, but it's, uh, we, we have a deep love and a deep friendship with each other. And that is, um, that really sustains us. But we, we, it is kind of a, a constant mix. Like this stuff will come up you know, at dinner time, at nighttime, on a walk, um, you know, it just, we're always kind of batting around what needs to be done, what happens next, uh, what choices we need to make, <clears throat> what we need to um, really um, let go of. And, you know, it was an interesting question that you asked, William, a few minutes ago is, um, you know, that that perfectionism. Michael is, when he does evaluation, he drills down and he he makes it as perfect as he as he can. Now he's not going to be able to do that with every search that somebody does when we sell access to this database, and that's something that's really a, a challenge to get over because Michael is really detail oriented, and he knows this stuff so deeply. I I I can't imagine anybody having a, the a bigger grasp of valuation of sexual misconduct claims in the world as Michael. So um, I have deep respect for what he knows. But sometimes that that letting go and saying, you know what, your your brain is not going to be able to be on every search, but we got to get it, you know, people from not knowing, I, can, I don't know if this is $10 or $10 million, we can narrow that down substantially, but it may not be as perfect as what Michael would be able to do. But um, but we have those discussions to answer your question that you asked. We have those discussions all the time. They crop up anytime. And we're just always kind of coaching each other on what's important and what we need to focus on in the next little bit. And now, Michael, well, I stepped all over you. you can go. <laughs> well, just to give you some context for the answer, uh, when we were early married, um, Leanne was talking to my grandfather <clears throat> And he was asking what she did and he, and she was explaining what she did in the work world and she was in human resources. And he said, Oh, I thought you were a motivational speaker. And she said, no, no, just with Michael. <laughs> so she had an aud- audience of one <laughs> and she's right. I, I get detail oriented and sometimes too much in the weeds because I'm trying to come up with that perfect thing. And she's been really good at saying, well, okay, you know, nothing's ever going to be perfect and you need to walk away for at some point. And she's a human resources background. She's a life and executive coach. And she and her friend have started a company where they go and speak to groups and give all kinds of information about data. And it's been really successful. And I think that as she's gone down that path, it's really informed uh, not just what I do, but our relationships so that she brings an expertise that has helped me and I think has made me better. You know, the most gratifying part of my work now is, is working with people who've been sexually abused. And so she has, has informed my understanding beyond my own empathy 
so that I really have had an opportunity to bring some of that skill set into what I do. And so that's that's something that makes this kind of a synergy. And uh, yeah, sometimes we have to walk away from each other at the end of the day, but but it's really been a, it's been a great partnership in more many more ways than one. Uh, you can tell. So let's get kind of into the details of the future. I mean, we've talked a lot about so we talked about the um, the background, right? Like how you got your knowledge in the space. We talked about the database and converting it over. Like how what is so we've got eight ten minutes left in podcast. Like how how does the company grow? Like what is our what are our target markets? Clearly, insurance companies want to access the database. What other markets are? or potential future markets out of this? Well, you know, you mentioned actuaries previously, and I have provided in the past all kinds of data for actuaries who are helping insurance companies in underwriting issues. You know, what kind of coverage should we provide? What limits of coverage? How much should we charge for that? And they've also helped insureds who are saying, we know we need this coverage. We have no idea how much we should pay for it. We have no idea what, what limits of coverage we should per- purchase. And so actuaries oftentimes do a lot of that work and they assist their clients that way. And my data has helped them. So that's a market. In addition, a lot of institutions that are insured are, I believe that that's a, a burgeoning market because they want to know on their own what their exposure is. And like I said, a lot of my work has been in the past and continues to be almost doing a tutorial and say, well, look, you may not realize it right now, but because of what you're involved in, what your business is or your charity is, you have a lot of exposure. And let me help you understand the degree of that exposure. So you should try to get coverage for this. You should employ certain kinds of risk management uh, policies to try to avoid abuse, things like that. But in addition to that, I think insurance brokers who are trying to place insurance for their clients, they are not a lot of times can use this because they are trying to help their clients understand what their needs are. And when it comes to this area, a lot of people don't understand and they don't want to understand things about sexual abuse. So it's really important that there's someone there who can have data that can help them do that. Um, I think that also uh, there are mediators and arbitrators and a mediator is not supposed to set a settlement. They don't come in and say, this is what this claim should settle for. What their job is to try to bring different parties together to negotiate a settlement. What can be really helpful, though, is if a mediator is armed with information that that is that they can say, well, wait, guys, you're negotiating in an area that's way out of the ballpark or you're not, you're not expanding your concepts enough about what the value of this claim is, that mediator can be really much more effective if he or she has that kind of information. And it, I think that there are government entities that could use this information when they're trying to get their hands around what, what kind of a problem is out there, what the scope of the problem is, and use that data in research or even producing government policy. In addition to that, I think that there are a lot of law firms and attorneys who could really benefit from this, even attorneys that have been involved in these types of claims for decades. Sometimes they don't know what they don't know. They don't have access to all kinds of information. They know the claims that they've worked on and the unique aspects of each claim. But it's really helpful if an attorney who's either defending against a claim or who's who's pursuing uh, help and compensation on behalf of their client, it can be really helpful to know, well, okay, these are the parameters. 
And my preference would be to resolve this claim quickly and have people who've been harmed to get compensation as soon as they can get it and to try to do it in a way that's really cost effective. So I think a lot of attorneys can also use this kind of information. I think that there's just myriad ways that this is beneficial to the community at large. And unfortunately, it's not just a U.S. market, it's a global market. That's correct. And I've worked on claims in different countries. And that's especially countries that are not where the United States is in terms of how much we've dealt with this. A lot of them are really out in the wilderness trying to to wrap their brains around what these claims are about and what the value is and how they can be part of a resolution process that will be really beneficial to the community, regardless of what side you're on, so to speak. So how does the company, how does does Burnett Index have to grow in order to support that over the course of the next five to 10 years, right? Like, how do you think about the future of the company? Like, we think about it initially as a database that people can access, but it, ultimately, it probably needs to morph into something more than that, right? I think so. I, I think that one of the things that I can think right off the top of my head is I've been the one that's been putting in this information into the database for over 21 years now. And that as these claims proliferate, I need, I basically just, you know, nuts and bolts, I need help with that. I'm going to need people that can help me with that, who understand the legal defenses and all of the different aspects of these claims that factor into it. But in addition to that, I think that we're going to have to get the word out there as much as possible that this exists and what the uses of, the, of it can be and how that can be really useful to a lot of different people. My experience has been that when I'm involved in a series, like a large number of claims, very quickly, I establish a relationship with plaintiff's attorneys, defense attorneys, risk managers, insurance carriers. And we start working almost as a team. And it's really exciting to me when we have people who are traditionally at odds with each other, when we can sit down and, and come to a quick resolution of something that's really mm -hmm. beneficial. So I need to market this claim in such a way that people know the existence of this, this database they know the existence of it, and they know how it can be best used for their purposes. And one more thing that I'd like to add to that is um, <clears throat> is the concept of prevention of sexual misconduct. Um, and uh, Michael already has connections with certain groups that um, that are really wonderful at creating um, uh, programs that that they that they provide to faith institutions and, and elsewhere to help people recognize and spot when abuse is taking place. And, uh, you know, I would say just like Michael was talking about how the insurance industry sometimes drives change. Uh, it would be wonderful if people seeing the database and the magnitude of how much money, time, energy, effort is going into the resolution of these, if we get more people really resolved to help prevent it in the first place, because, um, you know, it's a very, um, it, it's a it's a terrible, terrible thing that goes on. And, you know, Michael and, and together, we're doing what we can to help resolve the claims that are, but the best claim, or the best, the best situation is the one that never happens. And, um, and that would be uh, a wonderful uh, benefit of this in the long run, if we somehow prevented some more people from getting abused. And that's a good point. I'm, I've said many times when I give presentations, and I, I give speeches and presentations all over the country, what I've oftentimes said, the best claim is the one that never happens. And so I work a lot with some people called Protecting God's Children, the, v the Virtus organization, and they're kind of the preeminent 
prevention organization out there. They do substantial amounts of research and training of groups of people in different institutions to help them see, pick up on the red flags and understand what may be out there in the various dangers. And one of the things that happens a lot is when someone is, when an institution is confronted with a sexual abuse claim, I think that the initial reaction is to be defensive because it feels like an attack on what they do, especially if they're a religious or charitable organization where they're, they're, they exist for the purpose of doing good in the community. And someone says, hey, your guy abused me. It feels like an attack. And so part of the effort is to get people to realize, hey, you need companies like Fiertus who give this kind of training, but also to show you why you need that. This Here's this data, here's this information, here's this history of how these claims have been handled, sometimes not so well, that will help those people understand why they need it and what the scope of their exposure is. And part of what really is unfortunate, very unfortunate, is you have these institutions that have been really wonderful in society, and some of them are going bankrupt now because of because of the outlays that they've had to pay because of sexual abuse, because they didn't know to, to have prevention measures. And then when they did know, they didn't have adequate prevention measures. So data is something that is really a critical part of that so that they can begin to understand on their own why they might need uh, information and prevention measures and proper claims handling measures because they understand that these claims can make a huge impact, negative impact on their ability to be to to do their charitable work in the community. Yeah. So we're running up on time. So I'll ask this question as best I can. When we when you create a software in this instance, you've created a software to kind of institutionalize the knowledge that you've created over the course of the last 30 or 40 years. Um, the best way for this software to operate and function is in a prevention measure, which means prevention, unfortunately, will be to the end of time, right? It'll be a constant and forever problem because it's been a constant and forever problem up to now already. Well, um, Michael and Leanne, you might not be aware of this, you might, but you won't make it to the end of time, right? So um, eventually this software needs to to expand and grow and end up elsewhere. So acquisition of this software over time will be an important strategy, right? So who would be natural acquirers of something? Have you already started thinking through that? Or is it more about getting into the marketplace first or so how do you you know the popular term to use these days is exit right so most of the time as a professional you exit by retiring when you build a software you exit by getting it into somebody else's hand to let them use it and let it benefit society from there so how do you view that i think that ultimately what we would like to to think of in terms of acquisition would be corporations or some some entities who have large infrastructure people and background and, and expertise who can take this information and learn from me and from the information itself what the use of that can be. And so then they can acquire that information and they can help various institutions, including the insurance industries, including businesses and religious and charitable organizations, so that those people have an infrastructure that they can really utilize that and they can help others utilize it for all the purposes that uh, that you know, I want. And and you're right. The aspiration is that it'll be used for prevention. And I think at some point, 
as this becomes more successful and more well-known, uh, then I think that there will be people, there'll be institutions, companies that will recognize the value of this as some a kind of an add-on value in what they do to really utilize it for good in the community. So, well, it's um, it's been a thoroughly fun and engaging conversation. Um, I mean, as we acknowledged at the beginning, it's not a conversation that any one of us wish that we had to have, but it's a fact of the world that we live in. And y'all are doing a fantastic job of tackling it and helping um, to um, to resolve it as best that can be resolved. So um, thanks for y'all's hard work and thanks for the, the last 50 or 55 minutes of your time today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to sit down and continue the conversation. Thank, thank you, you very so much. much We've enjoyed it too. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Queen Bissett is owner of and an investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and the opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss the financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.